The sermon text this morning is from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 18. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phyglius and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. I don't think it probably would take a lot to convince you uh, that it's generally easier to do things for people that you love, right? If, if there's someone that you cherish or you love or you respect, it generally is easier to do something for them. I, I mean, even difficult things. We see this all the time. You see it with a, new, with a new mother and a newborn. I mean, nothing seems too difficult for the mother. She just loves this child so much that she'll do anything for this child. Or you see it in the life of, of newlyweds, right? That love is in full bloom and there is nothing that is too difficult for me uh, to do for this person. We see this time and time again, this idea of when you love someone or you cherish someone, then serving them in, in any capacity does not seem like a great sacrifice. Now, many of you know the name David Livingston. He was a missionary explorer in Africa, an English missionary. A lot of times I think he's maligned a little bit and being a bit of an explorer as opposed to a missionary. His intent as he speaks was to open up the, the land of Africa to the gospel. Uh, but after his mission experience, he came back to England and began to speak to a group of students at Cambridge University, and they spoke about his sacrifices that he made, the sufferings, the efforts, the sicknesses that he endured in that mission work. And he said something that was remarkable. At the very end, he said, I never made a sacrifice. He didn't see, because of the nature of the gospel, he didn't see it as a sacrifice. Uh, folks, this is incredibly important, that when you love, when you cherish someone, then there is no sacrifice. Well, Paul is, of course, handing the baton to Timothy, and he's instructing Timothy to endure. This is kind of like endurance part two from last week. 
And we learn that he hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, enablement of love and self-control that, that we're called to endure in faith. And so what Paul's going to do here, he's going to give them instructions on how to endure. And really three imperatives are in this text, or three commands. Uh, the first one, of, of course, is don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. That we shouldn't bear shame from the world over our following Jesus. Secondly, uh, that we are to share in suffering. Paul's inviting him. And the Greek word really participate in the suffering uh, that is going to be for the Lord and for the gospel. And then the third one is to follow the pattern of teaching that you've heard from me. But what I want you to see is that the three commands, he has sown through them. He has woven through the commands this gospel. That if you love and cherish the gospel, the commands make sense. If you don't love the gospel... If you're not overwhelmed by it, the commands won't make sense, and they'll be difficult to do. So, so first, let's look at cherishing the gospel. I just want to, there's a little gospel poem that you see in verses 9 and 10. We're going to look at that, and then we're going to look at the three imperatives or the three commands that make sense if you get that. So if you understand the glory of the gospel, the commands that it gives to endure make total sense. If, if they don't, then, then it won't. So let, let's look at nine. Turn with me, if you will, to uh, eight. We'll read eight to ten. He says, therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Here's where he explains the gospel. The power of God, who God, referencing, who God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So look with me back at 9a, the first part of 9. By the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. The first thing we see about the nature of this gospel, and I know this is going to make me look like, like Captain Obvious here, but the, the gospel doesn't begin with men. It isn't invented. It's not created. We didn't engineer. God saved us. The gospel begins with God. So God has saved us. Now, of course, the operative question is, what has he saved us from? Well, of course, we know that he saved us from sin and death. All the way back in the beginning, what kind of launches the whole story of the Bible is Adam and Eve rebelling against God. God had warned him in chapter 2 that the soul that sins will be the soul that dies. So sin brings death. Paul says the same thing, the wages of sin is death. And so chapter, chapter 3, of course, they sin against him. And what happens? They're alienated. They're separated like a branch taken off a tree. It won't live. Begins to die. And so God has saved us from our sin and the death that accompanies it. But I want you to see that it's in the past tense. He saved us, which is strange. Why the past tense? He's not saving us. We haven't, we haven't died yet. Well, Paul is assuring us of God's certainty in being able to save. And so he has saved us, puts it in the past tense. He has saved us. It's, it's fixed. It's permanent. Do you understand that about the nature of the gospel? Right now, for the Christian, you're saved. Paul says in Romans 8, neither life nor death, nor angels nor demons, nor things present nor things to come, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate you again from God. Now, you have been joined with him. You're saved. Spurgeon said it this way. 
He says, those saved are not looked upon as in a hopeful state as they may ultimately be saved, but that are already saved. Salvation is not a blessing to be enjoyed upon the dying bed, but it's a matter to be obtained, enjoyed, and received now. Did you feel that way? I mean, do you understand the gospel in that context? That in some ways you're immortal right now because you'll never be separated from God. God has saved us, but he didn't just save us. He's called us to a holy calling. Your holiness doesn't save you. No, his salvation, taking out the heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh, that saves you, and that begins that process where, where God, by his spirit, begins to move us. And, and that's a mark of the Christian here. It's really our evidence of his work is the desire to be holier. We'll never achieve perfection in this life, but we do find ourselves being drawn to repentance and faith over our sin as we confess each week at this corporate prayer. So, so the first thing we see in the gospel is God has saved us and called us to a holy calling. Do, do you understand that? Do, do, you, do you grasp the reality that for the Christian, you now are saved already, safe in God's hands? Uh, but secondly, you see in, in the second half of verse 9, read it with me if you will. He says, uh, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So Paul is saying here, the salvation to which you have, Timothy, to which we're called to enjoy right now. He has saved us, not by works, but by his purposes and grace. So in other words, our salvation is not rooted, it's not secured, it's not gathered, it's not earned by what we've done, our spiritual accomplishments, or our potential, or our progress. It's by his grace. So saying that salvation is by his grace means that God has unilaterally been kind to us. He's been kind to us. It, it isn't his kindness and your works. They, they cannot go together. They're mutually exclusive. Paul writes in Romans 11, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You can't have the two coexisting. If God saves us by grace, your works have done nothing to add to it, to secure it or to, to guarantee it. It's all by grace. I mean, this leaves us really humble. I mean, ask yourself, why am I acceptable to God? What makes me acceptable to God? If you go to anything that you've done, you're not understanding grace. If you go, but, but, but his grace saved me, but then I did this and this and this. Well, then you, you deserve something. You've earned something. But the salvation that he gives is all of grace. And I'll make, it, I'll make it stronger. Notice he says, it was in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So God chose to move with grace toward your soul before you were born, before you were created, before the worlds were created, before you had done anything good or bad. You can't even claim an ounce of it because it was all moved. Salvation was of God before we were. So we have no part of it other than to be humbled by his absolute majesty and kindness to us. I mean, it just leaves us just overwhelming. 
It's overwhelming. We can kind of, you know, it's kind of intuitive for us. Well, he does this. He's kind of the co-pilot and I'm driving and he's helping me. That makes sense to us. That's not what he's saying here. So we have to understand this grace by which we've been saved was given to us by God because he wanted to. Because of his purposes and pleasures. We see this in Ephesians 1. He destined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. You you see that refrain in Ephesians, praise of his glorious grace over and over because you, you keep coming back to God. You're to be praised. I mean, I can't understand this. So we see the gospel. He has saved us. He has saved us by his grace. But this grace by which he has saved us has appeared. Look with me at verse 10. In verse 10, he says, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So Paul's saying, Timothy, the gospel that we are preaching is a gospel where God is saving people by his grace. And this grace is not nebulous. So salvation in the Bible, it's not a philosophy. It's not an ideology. It's not some faith in a higher good. It's not some mutual love that we can develop for one another. It is rooted in the historical acts of Jesus' birth, death, birth, life, death, resurrection. So this grace has appeared in our space and time, in our physical reality. He has come to save And he has come to save by abolishing death. Now, you may be saying, yeah, but we still die. Abolishing death is to render it ineffective. It's to make it, it's like removing the stinger from a bee or taking the venom out of the tail of a scorpion. It won't do what it was meant to do, which is separate us from God. Death itself cannot separate us from God. He has abolished death as the enemy which brings us away from God forever. He's abolished it, rendered it useless. That's why J.I. Packer in his introduction to John Owen's work says that in his death, he put death to death. So he has abolished death and thereby removing from us the fear of death. So we don't need to fear death anymore. But he hasn't just abolished death. He's brought life now and immortality to light through the gospel. In the gospel, you see Jesus raised from the dead in our space and time. Now remember, the Jew would have expected a resurrection to occur at the very end of the age, but that's not what happened. He was raised in our space and time. He was raised in a fallen creation. He was raised to show us, to bring to light this life and immortality. He was raised. The, the cords of death couldn't hold on to him. This is why Jesus says to John, the apostle on the island of Patmos, chapter 1 of Revelation, he says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. He did die and was buried. Behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Do you see what he's saying here? This gospel is God saving us by his grace, and it's all been made clear to us in Jesus Christ. You know, most funerals, I'll usually quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian, Lutheran theologian that uh, was put to death by the Nazis at the end of the war. 
when he left his cell to be taken out, to be hung, uh, he said to those in his cell, for me, this is the end, the beginning of life. That's what he's saying here. It's the beginning of life because Jesus Christ in his resurrection has brought to us a picture. He's brought to light so we can see it. Here is life now and here is immortality forever. Friends, do you cherish this gospel that God has saved us by his grace, all manifest and revealed through Jesus Christ? Do you cherish it? Do you love it? We're people who can evaluate things. Uh, we, we know that the Hope Diamond in the Smithsonian is, is just priceless. We know the paintings in the Louvre are, are just without price. We, we know the gold at Fort Knox. You know, we have this idea of, of what is it? Do you see this is valuable? I mean, do, do you cherish it? You know, one author said, the religious man finds God useful, uh, but the disciple finds God beautiful. Did you find him beautiful? I mean, when you look at Christ, do you find him to be beautiful? There's so many times I find that we can drift off into a utilitarian view of the gospel. What does it do for me? How does it help me? As opposed to an affectionate view. Let's ask God to give us affections for the gospel. If you feel like your soul has kind of grown cold over its familiarity with it, then ask the Spirit of God to, to warm the soul that, that the heat in your heart would be, would be equal to the light in your mind. Ask him to have faith, to have feelings of increased love. I sometimes feel like over the years, we've become like that old furniture. You know, we, 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 the, the layers of paint or polyurethane or varnish that cover a, a piece of furniture. But, you know, you look at it and it's not that valuable to you. But then you scrape it, and you sand it, and you remove all the layers. And you see the beautiful grain of the wood and you, you're reminded of its beauty and its uniqueness. That's what we need for the gospel. So, so Paul is saying here, Timothy, gaze on this gift of God. And if you don't love it, then you won't do what I'm going to tell you you need to do. Uh, here's the problem. If you're the rule keeper type, if you're the older brother and you like to keep rules and you try to follow these without loving the gospel, you'll grow spiritually proud and arrogant. And if you're, if you're more the hedonist, if you're more like the younger brother, and you don't love the gospel, then you're going to give up, you're going to fail, and you're going to fall into despair. It, our obedience is no sacrifice if we love them. And what he's done for us, if that doesn't engender in you either a growing sense of love or a growing desire to love what he's done for us. Let's even start there. Even the beginning, even a desire for something is the beginning of worship. So, so let's, let's just pray for that. God, may we be a church, may we be a people who not only grow in our love, but are able to encourage one another in the beauty of this gospel, that we would never become familiar with it, that we would always be in awe and overwhelmed by what God has done by his grace for us in Christ.
Okay, then, so Paul says, Timothy, this is the gospel that you've been called to preach. So here's how we endure. And the first thing he says is don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord nor me, his prisoner. You see that right in the beginning of verse 8. To not be ashamed. The tense of the verb indicates that Timothy, I think, was having a little bit of shame, maybe a little bit of embarrassment. And by shame, what I mean is kind of that social stigma. I don't want to necessarily be associated with Jesus because it brings like public rebuke or I lose the respect of people. The shame that we're speaking about isn't shame. It isn't like if you do something stupid, you're kind of embarrassed. I'm not talking about that. I'm not even talking about the legitimate shame that comes when our sins are exposed and we're ashamed before God and we repent and we are forgiven. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that fear of man that we have, that when someone sees your head bowed and all of a sudden you want to stop praying or, or that kind of sense of shame that comes from an embarrassment to be associated with gospel. Now, why does this gospel produce in us that kind of shame? Well, I I think the message of the gospel is, is just offensive to people. I mean, you know what the gospel is saying. The gospel is telling all of us here that we are insufficient, we are inadequate, yet we do not have in us what God requires. We fall short. Even though we may try, and try we may, Uh, It is woefully inadequate so as to respond to a creator as a proper creature, bearing his image. People don't want to hear that. It's offensive to their self-image. It's it's offensive to their self-worth. We live in this pluralistic age and to say that Jesus Christ is the only one who has come and it's the only one, he's the only one who can save, it seems narrow-minded. It seems bigoted. It even sounds anti-intellectual. Now, Paul confronted the same deal. In Corinthians uh, chapter 1, he says in verse 23, he says, we preach Christ crucified. Stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Greeks. Now, I could preach Jesus as a help to you, and we would all get along fine with that. He's one of the gods, just our God, and he's there to help us get along in life. People would eat that up all day long. But that's why Paul says we preach Christ crucified. No, Christ had to be crucified. He had to be crucified for us. Well, now you're talking a different story. Uh, To the moralists, the Jews, this is offensive. I mean, I'm really trying. You, You don't know how far I've come. You don't know the background I've come from. I'm really a better person than I was. And it's offensive to me to hear that. Or the intellectuals or or the elites of our day, the Greeks, they're going to reason themselves. I will be able to reason myself into a right understanding of what life is about. No, it's offensive. And it brings about mockery and shame. It did in Paul's day. You know, the first piece of Christian art, they think it's the first piece of Christian art. It was Alexa Menno's Graffito. It's this scribbled kind of um, graffiti on a wall near the uh, Palatine Hill in Rome. And it was the first, they think, the first depiction of a crucifixion. And it was a, it was a, it was a man on a cross with another man beneath the cross as if he's worshiping it. But on the cross, the man had a donkey's head had a donkey's head. It was offensive. It it would have been mockery for the Christian to have a donkey-headed man on a cross. It has always engendered mockery. 
That was as far back as they think maybe 100 to 200 A.D. There it is on the wall of a building. There's been shame. But not just over Christ, over Christ's followers. Look at Paul. He says, don't be ashamed of me, Timothy. Paul's in the Mamertine prison, right? He's chained. He's, he's going to likely leave that place and die shortly after. And people were ashamed of him. Look in verse 15. He says, all who were in Asia turned from me. All of them. They all turned. They're embarrassed. They're ashamed. Now, I'm sure that there is this. Uh, most scholars think that there is kind of a health and wealth uh, teaching coming from Phygelus and Hermogenes. Hey, what kind of God is Paul following if he leaves him in a dungeon like that? And, and so they turned away from him in shame. Paul says, don't do it. Think of the gospel. Friends, have you turned away in shame? Do you struggle with that? Have you, do you find yourself often going silent if the gospel's criticized in the office or at the classroom? Have you felt that, that sense of, of shame or, or quietness? You kind of want to shrink back into the shadows if the gospel's being bantied about and made fun? How do you, how, what do you do? You know, think about it. Why should we be ashamed? Why? We believe in a God who has come in our space and time, more historical evidence for Jesus Christ than George Washington. Why should we be ashamed? that he has come and lived among us and died to save us. Why should he bear our shame? Friends, enduring is recognizing the glory of Christ. Not being ashamed, but honoring him. So that's the first thing we see. Don't be ashamed. Fight that. Confess that. Ask for prayers if you feel that shame. When that reticence comes on, we don't want to be obnoxious, but we want to be bold and courageous. Secondly, he says, to share in the sufferings. Look with me at the second half of eight. He says, share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. If we understand the nature of this gospel, and we believe it, as Paul said, and we're convinced that it's true, uh, then we will share, we'll participate in the sufferings. What Paul's doing is he's inviting Timothy. Listen, I'm suffering because I'm a preacher and I'm a teacher and I'm an apostle. I am engaging in the work of ministry and I'm suffering for it. And he's encouraging Timothy, suffer with me. The gospel is worth it. And if you don't love it and you don't think it's worth it, then suffering will be a challenge. But if you grow in your understanding and evaluation of the beauty of the gospel, it's worth it. But notice he says, he says, share with me in suffering. He says, for the gospel, not for our foolishness, or our, but for the gospel by the power of God. Friends, let me remind you of the power of God, because we saw that last week in verses 1, 8, that we don't have a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power. The word for power is not like Popeye and the spinach. You know, he eats the spinach, and whoop, he comes ripped really quick, and then everything becomes easy for him. It's not like that. It's, the, the Greek word means an enablement. He is enabling us to endure. Oftentimes, you don't think, you feel like you're living right on the edge. You're not going to feel this blast of power often. But there'll be, this, there'll be this undergirding of you that you will be able to endure by a power that you know is not your own. 
And so he calls us to share in this. Do you expect to face pushback in this culture? Friends, most of us in this country, and I'm not speaking uh, for the world right now, because there are people who are losing property, they're losing freedoms with imprisonment, and some are losing their lives. I don't think that we would face that in, the, in, the, in this generation. We, we may increasingly lose things, but I don't know that we'll face that, but we surely will face societal pressure. And many of you have cultural pressure and family pressure uh, for what you believe and why you believe it and how you're living out your beliefs. You get the sideward glances. You get the exclusion from parties or groups. You get kind of the, you know, the marginalizing from the neighbors. You know, people may kind of laugh or make fun. There, there may be that kind of societal pressure. And if you don't feel any of that, then it might be because you're too silent. It might be because... You know, you're not pressing against darkness with the truth of the gospel. Jesus said, we're going to face this. He says in John 15, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Friends, it's in the crosshairs of ministries that we're going to find this to be most the case. It's going to be as you speak for the gospel. It's going to be as you live it out. It's going to be when you do bring truth to bear in a situation that needs truth, but people don't want to hear it. That will put you in the crosshairs and bring you to a place of suffering. And you need to remember, Paul's saying, share with me. Paul's inviting us. You know, let me remind you in Philippians chapter 129, he says that we were appointed both to believe and to suffer. We were appointed to it. So it isn't happenstance when we're walking out the gospel. But, but let me invite you to that. You know, I was really helped by the words of the writer of Hebrews. In chapter 13, he says this. Remember, Hebrews is just, uh, the book of Hebrews is really one long sermon on perseverance through trials. He says, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that's to come. Boy, that's the operative thing right there. If we really are seeking a city that's to come, we'll go outside the camp with them. We'll bear the scorn that he bears. So friends, it's encouraging us to persevere as Christianity continues to get marginalized in our culture and we speak to the gospel and we live out gospel principles these words are going to become more clear and dear to you than they ought. The third thing he says is to follow the pattern of teaching. Look with me back at 12b. He says, but I'm not ashamed. This is Paul speaking. But I'm not ashamed for I know who, uh, whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul's telling Timothy just kind of this personal aside. He's saying, I, I believe it. And I'm convinced of it, that he will guard that good deposit. The gospel that he has given to me to proclaim, even though I'm in jail, God has it well in hand. It will do all that God intends it to do. And so he says to Timothy, so follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, 
big, big right there, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So Paul is telling Timothy, as God has guarded that good deposit, so will he in you. You just follow the pattern of sound words. Uh, that, that, that word pattern means like a, you know, an artist's sketch or an architectural drawing. Uh, the pattern of what the gospel is. Don't deviate from the gospel. Don't get inventive. Don't get creative. You don't need to add anything to the gospel. You don't need to even adjust the gospel because we're in a different context. You don't have to soften the gospel because they can't hear it in the hard way that often it's said. You don't have to adjust and manipulate it. We're like, one author said, we're like mail carriers. Nobody's asking you to rewrite their letter. Nobody's asking you to add some ending lines to the letter. Just deliver the mail. Just deliver it as it's been written. So the same thing, just preach it as it's been preached. Don't shift. Don't. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I passed on what I received. He didn't add anything to it. Now, folks, we see over and over our culture shifts away from the gospel. Uh, a simple case in point, many of you know this, Harvard University, 1636, first university established on the shores of this country. And, and that, that college was initiated to train Christian ministers. Here's the purpose. It was to be plainly instructed and to consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Christ Jesus. The motto imprinted on the diploma, I have to read it because I didn't go there, obviously. Uh, truth for Christ and his church. Truth for Christ and his church. Now, you say, well, they have come a long way from that. They did 75 years after it was started. That's what started Yale. And then Yale drifted, Princeton, Princeton drifted, Andover-Newton, Andover-Newton drifted. There's this tendency to drift. There's this tendency to always be adjusting, making the gospel more pliable, or using the gospel. You know, the, the, the gospel is about making us better men or better women or, or better workers. And while there are things in the gospel that do help us, the sanctifying influence of the Spirit, the gospel is about reclaiming sinners to God through faith in the Son who is manifested. There are a lot of needs that the church speaks to, social justice, the care for the poor, you know, right government. And those are all legitimate needs we have. But the Bible addresses the most fundamental need. The gospel addresses our need to be redeemed by Jesus Christ. Our need to have our sins cleansed, our, our, our souls remade. That's what the, now the Bible speaks to many issues. It does. And it does well. But we don't want to shift from this one message. We see it in the ministry of Jesus. I brought this up a week ago or a few weeks ago to you. You know, you see the ministry of Jesus, right? He's in Capernaum. It's Mark chapter 2. He's in the house. It's packed. And, and through the roof comes a paralytic. Now, a paralytic is being lowered down. Why? Well, because he's paralyzed. He can't walk. And what does Jesus say to him? What's the first thing he says? He says, your sins are forgiven. Now, that, you know, in counseling speak, that's not the presenting problem. No, the presenting problem is he can't walk. But that's not the real problem. The real problem is he had, he had broken rank with his creator and he was dying. He needed to be rejoined, reconciled. 
and it was only through Christ. We don't want to shift away from this message. So here you have this passage. It's a beautiful passage. You have the gospel being held up like a diamond for you to enjoy. And if the gospel is so glorious that God has saved us by his grace, which has now been manifest and accomplished in Christ, then may we not be ashamed? May we endure suffering gladly for the worth of the gospel? May we keep and follow the same pattern of teaching? That's all Paul's saying to Timothy. But what Paul does at the end in 15 18 is he gives them two examples. He gives them a bad example and a good example. And I want to look at these with you because I think they're both instructive. Look with me at 15. In 15, he says, You're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among them whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Okay, we don't know who these two men are per se. We think they're probably leaders of this kind of um, like health and wealth teaching that had no category for suffering. And so when Paul began to suffer, it wasn't reflective of the God that they were preaching. And so they began to steer people away in Asia, away from Paul. Notice all who were in Asia departed from me. Now remember, in Acts chapter 19, Paul spent two years preaching. He said this. He says uh, in verse 7, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul was effective in his evangelism. He preached the gospel to all the residents, and many believed. But now they turn. Now, does this mean that they deconverted? I, I don't know. I, I don't think that all deconverted. Maybe they just deserted, but they turned away. They were ashamed. They didn't want to participate in suffering. And Paul's saying, Timothy, this is what it means to be ashamed of the gospel, is you turn away, you go to the periphery, you kind of, you kind of move to the outside. We're going to see this in chapter 4 with Demas, who loved the world. You're going to see it in chapter 4, verse 16 with Alexander. He, he, he did Paul great harm, such that when Paul, at his defense, no one stood by him. The great apostle Paul, all those that came to faith through his preaching, none stood by him. This is a hard word. Folks, you know, we want to endure in this culture, but we also need to endure with each other. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that the greatest threat to the Christian faith is the Christian church. We can desert each other. And this is, the, this is the troubling thing in ministry. When you see people begin to wander away, the pressures of life, the struggles, the societal pressures, the desire to be popular, the desire for comfort or safety, and you see people begin to go to the periphery, and then they begin to go to the periphery, and then from there they're easily picked off. Martin Luther said, there are many kinds of sorrow on earth, but the deepest of all sorrows is when the heart loses Christ and he is no longer seen and there is no hope of comfort from him and there is no hope even from God, but the world rejoices. The world rejoices. Uh, folks, we, uh, this is a sad, you know, if we hold up comfort and security, popularity and position, if those are essential to us, then be aware of the threat. Heed the warning. The warning is simply this, that if we're not walking with each other, uh, the shame and the threat of suffering, it has, under, it has um, yeah, undermined a faith in many people. So he, he's saying to Timothy, here's an example of what it looks like to be ashamed. He's not threatening them. He's saying, here are examples. They all turned away from me. 
But you have this great example, and that's the force. You have this, you have this example of faithfulness. Paul prays twice. Look in 16. He says, may the Lord grant mercy. Twice he prays, and to his household. Some think that maybe he died, and he's praying for his household. But what this man did was he came, and he refreshed Paul. He, he diligently searched, and he found him, and then he refreshed him, probably with food. Remember now, in this day, prisons weren't the incarceration kind of buildings that they are now. Generally, you would be put in prison before a trial. You would face the trial. You would receive the punishment. And, and, and that you don't go to a prison. You'd face the punishment. Here, they were waiting. And so there was no food being given. There was no amenities being shared with the prisoners. Someone from the outside had to care for them. And so Nesiphorus came and he took care of him. But let me remind you, in taking care of him, you're associating with the prisoner. And in a associating with the prisoner, you're putting yourself in the same harm's way that the prisoner is. In fact, you see this in Hebrews chapter 10, 34. He says, for you had compassion on those in prison. So the Christians in the book of Hebrews, the Christians were having compassion on those in prison. And here's what happened. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So they lost their property because of their association with those in prison. So you see what this, this man, what, he, what threat he put himself under. Paul says, he refreshed me. May God have mercy. Twice. And on that day, won't that be amazing? He probably didn't receive the accolades in the doing of it. But on that final day, there'll be accolades. We want to be people who refresh one another who come along and strengthen those who are serving us, your care group leaders, Bible study leaders, those people pouring into your life, kind of encouraging you in faithfulness to endure. Uh, they're refreshing you. Pray for their mercy. Pray for their strength. So here, Paul calls us to endure, and he gives us two examples. One of what it looks like to be ashamed of the gospel. But what does it say about the second man? He was unashamed of my chains, unashamed. I will identify with him, and I'll bear what he bears. I'll go outside the camp with him. So, friends, let's ask God, even right now as we pray for just a minute, let's ask God to have this kind of love for the gospel, that we would look at these things and say, I made no sacrifice, and then I'll pray for us in a minute. When I consider the sun and the moon and the stars that you have set in place, um, what is man that you consider him? Father, you have considered us. You have saved us. You have saved us by your grace, and, and you have brought that grace forth in Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Uh, Father, I, I would ask uh, for myself, for uh, brothers and sisters here who have uh, put their faith in this son, I, I would pray that you would give us a, a love for, a, a desire for, a deep, a deep affection for Christ and all that he's done. Uh, Father, I, I pray that out of the overflow of our love for him, that we would endure, we would not face the shame 
uh, we would join and, f- and really participate in the sufferings that you appoint, not those that we seek, and, and that we would continue holding forth the gospel for others. Father, for those that are even here today that, that are uncertain about their own spiritual well-being, their eternal destiny, their position with you, Father, would you grant to them uh, grace to open their eyes to the beauty of Christ. Uh, give them the gift of faith that they can believe to be changed by your grace and begin to follow hard after this beautiful Savior. Father, I, I pray that, that we would be a church marked by our endurance, our, our refreshing of one another, uh, particularly those who are flagging in faith that we would we would pursue and we would persevere in seeking their spiritual good. May we be those kind of people, rescuing others, those who have been rescued by Christ. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.